Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to see a few more people here. Uh, we're all having to learn a lot of extra skills about how on earth do you read the Bible with a face mask when your glasses are fogging up. It's hard, isn't it, uh, to, to juggle all these new skills, but it's great to see you all, uh, even if your glasses are getting fogged up. I take that that you're very excited about being here. And it's great to be able to hopefully have people watch from home. I think we've had a few technical difficulties. And so apologies if the audio has not been um, playing up completely well at home. But we'll keep working on that. Well, have you ever seen things that have changed your view of reality? Uh, on September the 17th in 1683, a Dutch scientist, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, I don't know, I probably didn't say that right. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Royal Society where he wrote about his discovery of animalcules, he called them. Uh, he didn't have any training in science, uh, but he experimented with grinding down lenses and he hired an artist to draw the things that he saw as he looked through this most basic microscope. And in his letter to the Royal Society, he wrote about what he'd observed by examining the plaque between his teeth. Yes, it's going to get a little bit gross. And this is what he wrote. I saw with great wonder that in the said matter there were many very little living animalcules, very prettily a-moving. The biggest sort had a very strong and swift motion and shot through the water or spittle like a pike does go through water. The second sort oft times spun around like a top and were far more in number. So the Royal Society were very skeptical as they read this letter. They began to discuss whether he was uh, completely all there mentally. But of course today he's considered the father of microbiology as he described uh, bacteria for the very first time. And I'll never forget in my dental training the first time I actually saw these um, bacteria that are in your plaque uh, for myself. And i tell you what, that night I brushed my teeth like I had never brushed them before. Uh, it, was, uh, it was something that has forever changed my view of reality. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a bit gross of an illustration. And I know you all want to brush your teeth right now, but hold off because we want to see from Mark's gospel how, in a sense, this is such a moment for the disciples. Um, they witnessed something that was once hidden about Jesus, but was revealed. Uh, that, and I think that what they saw has the power to transform our view of reality if we will see the glory of Jesus. Um, it's hidden to many people today. Uh, and yet, uh, if we can see it, it'll change the whole of our understanding of reality. To see who is, his glory in who he is, in what he came to do, and how his power is unleashed in the world today. Now, before we get going uh, this morning, I want to remind you about the structure and the method of um, Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark's a preacher and a teacher, and uh, his method is to basically um, educate with two main steps, teaching and demonstration. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 4, uh, he recounts how Jesus spent a whole day 
teaching through parables about seeds, about the power of God's word. And then what happens on that very day? Well, on that very day, they get on a boat and as they cross the Sea of Galilee, a huge storm comes up. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. And then Jesus stands up and commands the winds and the waves to be quiet. And instantly, it is quiet. A day of teaching about the power of God's word. And in that moment, he demonstrates the power of his word. And I think something like that is going on in in Mark's gospel, chapter 8 and 9. We've had a lot of teaching about um, the identity of Jesus. You are the Messiah, Peter declared. About the mission of Jesus. As he talks about that the Son of Man must suffer uh, many things and be rejected and killed. And then we saw the call of Jesus, Jesus teaching the crowds about self-denying, cross-bearing, Jesus-following discipleship. Now look at chapter 9, verse 2, and open up your Bibles there if you've got them shut. If you look back at Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, After six days, after six days of these very things being taught, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up to a high mountain. We've had the teaching. Now we're going to get a demonstration, a demonstration of his identity on that mountaintop. And as they walk down the mountain, uh, we, he once again draws their attention to his mission of suffering and rejection. And at the bottom of the mountain, in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, we see Jesus demonstrating the essence of discipleship uh, in a world of conflict and suffering and, uh, and oppression, in a world that we live in today. And in all of this, I have been praying as I've been preparing that we will see the unique glory of Jesus. Uh, perhaps for the very first time today, or, or perhaps we will we'll, we'll see it even more clearly uh, if we are already disciples of him. So firstly, let's see his glory in his identity in this opening section of verses 2 to 8. Verse 2, very simply put to this way, there he was transfigured before them. Here was the big reveal moment. He had taught about not being ashamed of him and his words so that when the Son of Man returns in his Father's glory, he wouldn't be ashamed of us. And now he demonstrates to his disciples, what the Son of Man looked like in his Father's glory. He was visibly changed before them. So much so that even his clothes seemed to be transformed so that they were dazzling white. And by the way, if you haven't been watching Sunday School, you've been missing out. And if you watch the Sunday School this week, it's amazing that they managed to pull off the transfiguration with Lego. You you don't think it's possible, but you watch it, you'll see it. It's extraordinary. What's going on here in this transfiguration? Well, three things to note. Firstly, his divine glory was being revealed. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this amazing description of of heaven. God is described as the ancient of days who takes his seat on a throne of fire and his clothes are And whole appearance is white. And then as Daniel looks, he sees one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
and he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days and he is given authority, glory, sovereign power so that all nations and peoples of every language worship him. And it says his dominion will be an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that can never be destroyed. And you, know, you can imagine people reading that, uh, that Daniel prophecy for hundreds of years ago. Well, how can, a, how can a man be worshipped by all nations and all peoples and share the glory of God? How can this son of man-like person be there? Well, only by being someone who is truly God and truly man. And so what the disciples saw on that mountain as they see Jesus' appearance becoming dazzling white is that his glory is being revealed, his glory of his divine being. That here is God who has been hidden in human flesh. And here is in a temporary moment, his glory of divinity is revealed. Second aspect of what we see here is that the appearance of these Old Testament greats kind of shows us the greatness of Jesus. Uh, Elijah turns up. Now, how on earth did they know it was Elijah? Uh, was it his groovy clothes, his camel clothes and his leather belt, you know, that outfit that uh, John the Baptist wore early on in his ministry to identify himself with the ministry of Elijah? Was he eating honey-coated uh, roasted locusts? We don't know exactly how they knew it was Elijah, but they knew it was Elijah, one of the Old Testament greats. Um, the dramatic prophet who called people back to a, a covenant relationship with God, who actually never died, the, the account in the Old Testament says, but was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Malachi promised that, uh, that Elijah would return again before the, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now what could bring him back from heaven but the Lord? And he appears to talk with Jesus. And then Moses, the mediator who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai uh, to be the go-between that kind of uh, brought about like this marriage-like covenant between God and Israel. A, a covenant that was sealed with sacrifice, it says in Exodus chapter 24. And, and we read it earlier how Moses ascended up to Mount Sinai to, to receive God's law on tablets inscribed by God himself and God's glory settled like a cloud on the mountain and God spoke to Moses from the, the cloud. And once more, Moses is called to appear up a mountaintop but this time he's talking with Jesus. Here is the glory and the greatness of Jesus. The great ones of the Old Testament turn up to speak to Jesus. Uh, in a sense, the one who represents the prophets, the one who presents, uh, represents the law, they come because Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment uh, that all of the Old Testament is pointed to and they come to talk to Jesus. Third thing to notice that God the Father testifies to the unique glory of His Son. Take a look again at verse 7 and hear the voice of God. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Here it is. This is my Son. 
whom I love. Listen to him. That's what God said. Think about those words. This is my son. God the Father identifies this man, Jesus, to be his unique son. Here is the son of man who's acknowledged by the ancient of days. Going back to that Daniel 7 prophecy. When Mark speaks of Jesus being the son of God, he is referring to Jesus being co-equal with God the Father. He is the divine Messiah. Yes, the Messiah kings were all human, but here is the human king who is also God. This is my son, whom I love, God declares. God has to just speak out his delight about Jesus. His divine approval, whom I love. God the Father observing and seeing the perfect obedience of his Son and his moral perfection, he has to declare, whom I love. I I think here's a little place in the Bible where we get to peek into something of the, the, the great mystery of the triune God. That at the center of the universe, before anything was created, was a God of community and loving relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit existing in mutual, indwelling love. And God is delighted to declare, this is my Son whom I love. And here's here's the punch. Listen to Him. See, the benefit of this is for the disciples, isn't it? Jesus uh, heard these words for himself at the baptism. But this time, this declaration, this voice from heaven in Mark's gospel is for the, for the disciples to get it. I mean, Peter thought it was so cool to see this amazing squad of greats. You know, uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He kind of blurts out, uh, let, let's, build, um, let's build three shelters to, to honor uh, all, all three of you. And, you know, you can almost imagine a moment as you read Mark's account where Mark Uh, as he's writing this down for the first time, as Peter shares it with him in the room, um, putting his quill down and saying, you said what? And then Peter telling him, "Uh, you know, I I, I didn't know what to say. We were so terrified. Could you write that in? Write that in. Uh, Yeah, okay. He didn't know what to say. He was so terrified. (laughs) After hearing God the Father speak and command them to listen to him suddenly, When the disciples look again, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. The point is this. There's only one who has unique and supreme glory. And that is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now it took a while for this event to sink in to Peter what was really going on. Uh, you know, it probably took till after the resurrection and the ascension for it to really start hitting home. But, you know, what he witnessed that day, he would never forget. In his second letter, Peter wrote this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. 
we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. This was a moment of reality that forever changed things for Peter. And the command is clear, isn't it? When you get the glory of this person, how should you respond? God tells us, listen to him. This is the divine validation of, of, of who Jesus is and of all that Jesus has taught. And so quite simply, I want to ask you, are you listening to Jesus? Are we listening to Jesus? We hear so many voices today. We have more opportunities with podcasts, nonstop news, uh, you know, it's all around us. YouTube. Above all the things that we listen to, do we give the best part of our time to listening to Jesus? I don't think we should expect to see such visionary experiences ourselves. It's not like this happened every week for the disciples. This was a unique moment. It was kind of replaying what happened at Mount Sinai. This is Mount Sinai part two and its fulfillment in Jesus. We're not to expect visionary experiences like this. Uh, but we have the scriptures that record for us so that we can read them in order to see and witness his glory for ourselves. You see, John, who was up on that mountain, he never forgot this moment either, did he? Think about that opening part of his gospel account. The word who was with God, who was God, who became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we see his glory, the glory of the Son of God, then of course we're going to want to listen to him above all others in life. And so do we love our Bibles more than we love Facebook or the newspapers or the footy or our Playstations? Because we know that in the Bible we get to hear Jesus. We get to see the glory of Jesus. And out of all the voices in our life, God commands us this. Listen to him. So let's see his glory in his identity. But in the next section, we kind of see his glory in his mission uh, in verses 9 to 13. Remember that when Peter first heard Jesus talking of how he must suffer because this was God's plan of salvation, what did Peter do? He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And so Peter got a massive demonstration from the cloud and the voice of God speaking directly to him. Stop rebuking and start listening to Jesus. And as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus forbids them from sharing what they just witnessed until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then we see their kind of their continuing blindness and perhaps we can forgive them at this point uh, as they try to work out what does this rising of the dead mean? And their question to Jesus seems to focus really on the less important part of the mountaintop experience, Elijah. Uh, why, um, uh, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? I mean, Malachi had promised 
uh, that Elijah would return before the terrible day of the Lord. And Mark has already shown us in his gospel account, in a sense, John the Baptist dressed like Elijah was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He did prepare people for the way of the Lord, calling them to a baptism of repentance. He did mark the start of the restoration of all things by introducing Jesus who would accomplish that restoration. But even as Jesus answered their question about Elijah, he directs their attention back to his mission of how he would accomplish this restoration of all things. Verse 12, uh, to be sure, uh, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then? Is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Jesus wants to get their eyes back on this topic. Getting them to think back to all those Bible passages we mentioned last Sunday, like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But I want you to notice this. This struck me this week as I studied this. That what happens is spatially is what's in a sense happening spiritually. Um, what's happening well, Jesus is descending from glory into the valley where we're going to find there's a lot of despair. And he's descending from glory because he's on a mission. He's directing his disciples to consider the mission as they, as they come down the mountainside. He has come down from glory to restore all things, but it can only be achieved by his costly sacrifice. And so are we listening to Jesus about the centrality of his mission, about the centrality of the cross. His suffering and cross are the essential part of God's plan. And although the glory of the cross is hidden to those who reject him, people don't understand the death of Jesus and the cross and why it's so precious, but it's precious to those who are being saved because we see its central significance. My friends, as Christians, we should never lose this central place of glorying in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's tragic that some uh, supposedly Christian ministers can actually uh, get embarrassed about talking about the cross being the place where God's wrath is removed, that it's the place of atonement, the place of substitution and sacrifice. But when you see the glory of the cross, you cannot see anything or do anything but talk about how amazing it is. The Apostle Paul wrote that the life I now live, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when you see that in the cross, it is why we sing so many songs like we did last week. Although it killed me not to sing the last song last week because I was in this building. When I survey the wondrous cross. So we need to see his glory in his identity, in his mission, and lastly, to see his glory in his call. In this last section in verses 14 to 29, what is this scene in the valley at the bottom of the mountain? It is a world of desperate needs. And descending from the mountain, which is a revelation of the glory of Jesus, we see a desperate scene and really, it's the world that we know today. It's a world where the devil is at work. The father of lies who promises life, but instead just enslaves and degrades and destroys. And we see 
this son who's experiencing great suffering. He displays many of the symptoms that, I, that sound to me like epilepsy. But Mark is clear when he's talking about physical things. But he's saying these, these symptoms are actually uh, because of a spiritual attack rather than just a physical attack. He's possessed by an evil spirit that robs him of speech and hearing. That causes these seizures and convulsions where he's foaming at the mouth and he's gnashing his teeth. Uh, this affliction is imperiling his life. These attacks have almost taken his life, leading him to throw himself in the fire or drown himself in the water. So we see that the devil's at work. We see great suffering. And we see a father who's at his wit's end. From childhood, he's watched his boy grow up and suffer this terrible affliction. You can only imagine the trauma of that. He's done his very best to try and protect him and to keep him. But there's that nagging thought, what if I'm not around next time he has a seizure and I won't be able to save him? And in desperation, he brings his son to Jesus, but he only gets the disciples because Jesus is absent. And look at this large crowd gathered around him. The clergy are arguing again. An unbelieving crowd are watching the spectacle and you've got the disciples, well, they're just frustrated and they're powerless. They're impotent before this suffering. They don't know what to do. Verse 18, the father explains to Jesus, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Well, I think this is the world that we minister to as a church today, isn't it? A world of spiritual oppression, of suffering, of conflict, where we as disciples can feel impotent and insufficient. But this is a world where the God of glory has come down in his incarnate Son to confront evil and to bring salvation. And it seems in verse 15 as if there's some residual effects of glory from the mountain in the appearance of Jesus. Look at verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now, why are the disciples so powerless in this conflict with suffering and darkness? Well, look at verse 19. You unbelieving generation. The sun, the crowd, the clergy, the disciples. A generation who will not trust and rely upon God. Now, the sight of Jesus causes the evil spirit to throw the son into a convulsion. He's thrown into the ground. And then in verse 22, the father begs Jesus, if you can do anything. Literally, uh, he's saying, if you have power, take pity on us and help us. But notice the compassion of Jesus and the power of Jesus is, is not where the problem lies here. Verse 23, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Power is available, but faith is required. The compassion of Jesus is not in doubt, but we must turn to rely on him. Verse 24, immediately 
the boy's father cries out words that I think have become the prayer of many. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a desperate life of struggle this, this man's life story has been. He's been in great trials both for his, the life of his son and even for the existence of his, of his own faith as he's been around, surrounded by the suffering. But in immediately admitting his inadequacy and expressing his needy dependence on Jesus, I think he is the example to an unbelieving generation. He's an example to disciples. And what is wonderful here in this account is that this faltering faith in Jesus is enough. Jesus has the power to do what the disciples could not. He commanded the deaf and mute spirit to come out of him and never to enter him again. And with a great shrieking convulsion, the spirit came out. It was such a traumatic experience that the boy looks like a corpse. But the glory and the greatness of Jesus is that he can raise the dead. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Now indoors, the disciples ask him, why couldn't we drive it out? Literally, why were we not powerful enough to drive it out? That's the question. Why were we not powerful enough to drive it out, Jesus? And his reply is profound, devastating, and it's simplicity. Verse 29, he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is a massive lesson about discipleship, isn't it? The call to follow Jesus is a call to prayerful dependence upon God. The power to follow Jesus and to minister for Jesus in this needy world is not in us. How can people who are deaf to the things of God be brought from spiritual death and bondage to Satan into life and freedom? Well, our human resources, we don't have the power to do this. Only Jesus has the power to achieve this. This is why we need such a clear-sighted vision of his glory. He has divine power to transform people's lives and save eternally. He left the glory of heaven and took on human flesh and obediently went to the cross to suffer to die for our sins and then rise in glory precisely because it's the only way that we can be saved. Now the reason that the disciples had a problem appears quite simple because simply they had not prayed when confronted with this man. They had not depended on God's help when faced with this man's desperate needs. Sent out by Jesus earlier, uh, they had cast out spirits in their ministry. Were they just now coasting? Were they thinking, well, that they had the techniques, they had the experience, they had the words that would get the results, but they did not. Do we lack power? Uh, are we not seeing breakthroughs in our own lives or in people's lives? Or are we not seeing growth in the church because quite simply we're depending on ourselves rather than God? How is the power of God appropriated? Well, the answer is in the text. Chapter 9, verse 23, everything is possible for those who believe. And 9, verse 29, this kind can come out only by prayer. The disciples get this demonstration 
that the, the call to discipleship of denying self, taking up the cross and following Jesus is only lived in prayerful dependence upon God. Prayer is the outward response of genuine faith in God. You want to see faith? Look at people who pray. They're showing their faith as they pray. This is a great prayer, isn't it? When you feel that your faith is faltering. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And as we exercise faith in God, for whom everything is possible and nothing is impossible, there is always hope in a needy world. I don't think I'm... I can, that we can say that it's always God's will to heal or deliver at a fixed time in a fixed way. It might not be his purpose to do so. We might find that we have to accept what the Lord taught the Apostle Paul who many times asked God to take away this affliction from him. But God says no. But what he does say is my grace will be sufficient for you. But we know it is always his ultimate will to heal and deliver in that ultimate sense that all who will repent and believe will enter the kingdom of God through Jesus and enjoy the blessings of salvation for all eternity. And so my question to us here in this room and to you at home is, do we see the glory of Jesus? I don't think we'll start the Christian life until we do. We will never put our trust in the crucified Messiah who rose on the third day until we see the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. I don't think we'll deny ourselves and take up the cross unafraid of the scorn and rejection of a world until we're convinced that one day the Son of Man will return in his Father's glory to establish his everlasting kingdom. And my Christian friends, can I say to us today that the Bible encourages us to spend time meditating on this glorious Jesus. To fix our eyes on the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorning its shame. That actually, if we will fix our eyes on the glorious Jesus, we will not grow weary and lose heart. And so keep persevering through the trials of life. And we also have this incredible promise that as we keep gazing at the glory of Jesus, as we contemplate who he is and all he is for us, we are also being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And we're going to sing about that in our closing song. To turn our eyes upon Jesus. Hum along in the room. Sing it out at home.